0: You are listening to the Hoops Fix Podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix Podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita full-time British basketball advocate and this week's show uh, we've got the first guest that is not directly involved uh, with British basketball in any type of way but it doesn't make it any less relevant or interesting uh, for British basketball it is none other than none other than Jeremy O'Lega he is the Australian NBL commissioner now uh, why the Australian NBL? Uh, the reason being um, it has undergone a drastic uh, sort of transformation in the last five years from a league that is was pretty much on the verge of bankruptcy to now being one of the uh, well most most globally prominent uh, basketball leagues a breeding ground for future NBA prospects and has a lot of lot of eyeballs on it Um and all of that has been achieved in in, in in five years. Now, like the BBL, it had its heyday back in the 80s, 90s. It was huge. Um, and then it kind of went through a, a sort of rough patch and has now been coming out, coming out of that. Um, what happened was in, in 2015, Larry Kesselman, who was then the owner of, of Melbourne United, actually known as Melbourne Tigers at the time, has since rebranded, um, <laughs> Ended up taking over the league. Uh, took a majority controlling fifty one percent stake. Uh, before that, every league, ha- every team, every franchise had an equal uh, say at the table, like uh, with the current B- BBL uh, in the UK. But Larry recognised that if things were going to turn around, uh, it needed a di- dictatorship. He needed full control uh, to be able to do the things that he felt was necessary to to t- turn the league around. Uh, he paired up with with Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy was he used to work. With, Jeremy used to be a lawyer, and um, Larry was one of his clients. They kind of looked at it uh, and put together a plan and felt that it was a viable uh, project to uh, really get their teeth sunk into. And that is exactly what they did. Uh, within the space of five years, you know, franchises have gone from being valued at $20,000 uh, to now pretty much all having a minimum valuation of between 8 and $10 million. Um, so you, you can see the growth there is absolutely incredible. There was a bunch of topics that we didn't get to. We were under a, a, a kind of strict um, time schedule because Jeremy's a, a very busy man. Um, But I did send him some follow-up questions, which I just wanted to go through quickly in the introduction just for for context. One of the big ones that I didn't get to talk about uh, was the role of facilities. Of course, we know facilities is a massive issue and what the situation is with uh, Australian NBL franchises and their arenas and facilities that they play out of. I asked whether the situation was the same as the UK and kind of what it is and he replied that uh, yeah for the most part we are in the same situation as the UK in this regard as you have described it I asked whether then uh, that the same applies for practice facilities um, and he responded the same applies sadly so again massive parallels uh, they do not own the owner readers which means they do not make, be able to, are able to make money out of it with other bookings throughout the course of the week um, they do have to pay to hire it they don't get secondary spend on, on game nights um, so it's a challenging situation and then the second question was About TV and the importance of free to air television in particular, uh, because we did not get to speak about that. And he said, uh, Free to air continues to be the biggest driver, uh, sorry, the biggest direct influence on domestic ratings. However, the emergence of OTT services into international markets is very quickly becoming just as important from a revenue generating perspective. So there's just two things we didn't get to cover. Um, But yeah, obviously, there was a bunch of stuff we did cover. And I think it's a really interesting story to get your teeth sunk into. Uh, It was so interesting, in fact, that I did 3,000 words uh, worth of notes in the research that I did and I'm actually putting together as a case study uh, which I'm going to release as a white paper uh, hopefully to to help sort of grow the British game and for people to be able to use um, to come, come in with knowledge and context to how we turn this thing around in the UK. If you're interested in that, I'm going to put a, a link in the description um, with a just an email sign up form and you can be notified uh, when it's ready and I'm going to be releasing it. Uh, Likely it it's going to be for free, of course. Um, but yeah, it will be interesting, I think, and uh, gives me something to kind of dig into a lot deeper. Anyway, as always, before we do get into the show, please take two seconds to share our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P A T R E O N dot com forward slash H O O P S F I X. There you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution of as much or as little as you'd like. Uh, To help us do the work that we're doing, it goes a long way in helping us grow this British basketball media landscape. So please, if you get any value from the podcast, if you get any value from the the posts on the website, uh, the social media content that we put out on a regular basis, uh, please consider donating a few pounds a month or a year uh, to help us uh, grow and uh, do this. If you're watching on YouTube, let me know what you think about the growth of the Australian NBL and what British basketball can learn from it. Uh, You can reach out to me on every single social media platform at Hoopsfix. And of course, if you want some uh, private uh, one-on-one interaction, uh, please drop an email to Sam at hoopsfix.com. Anyway, that is enough from me. Here is this week's show with Jeremy Loliga. Jeremy, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Sam. Great to be here.
0: So I listened to your podcast uh, with Fran Fischiller on his World of Basketball podcast, and was fascinated about the story of sort of the NBL's growth over the last uh, five years. But in particular, because I found that there was a lot of parallels between um, the situation the NBL kind of was in and uh, the BBL, the British Basketball League that, that we've got going on over here in the UK. So I kind of I would love to start just by talking about um, where the league was when when you first got involved, uh, what sort of the backstory was, and and how you sort of came into into being involved with it.
1: Yeah, no problem. The I was going to say cut a long story short, but it's worth going into the long story. The, the situation was that the National Basketball League in Australia was thriving back in the late 1980s, well, or most, through most of the 80s and then the early 90s. And for those of you at listeners who, who know anything about Australian basketball, they'll probably know the name Andrew Gaze. He's um, undeniably the best player to ever lace them up uh, in the NBL, at least the best Australian player. Um, and it's probably the name most synonymous with Australian basketball. You might argue Ben Simmons now is, is pushing for that mantle. But in terms of longevity, the Andrew Gaze era of the NBL was, was the golden era back in the day. And uh, um, that coincided with much of the golden era of the NBA as well. Of course, it was the Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson era. And there's no doubt that the fortunes of the two leagues were kind of correlated. The fact was that everyone knew about the NBA, but over here in Australia, it wasn't very accessible. And you you couldn't watch live games. You could watch maybe an hour uh, of half a game replay on a weekend. Uh, Other than that, you were looking for box scores on the back pages of the newspaper. Um, So everyone knew about it. It was very glamorous at the time but no one could get to it, and so the NBL flourished because we were the local accessible equivalent. Um, fast forward only a few years and the Gazers and Leonard Copelands of the world started to retire here in Australia and you had Jordan Bird Johnson, that generation of superstar retiring in the U.S. The next generation of superstar in the U.S. were, were people like um, Allen Iverson, Carmelo Anthony, Um, It was a very different sort of superstar generation and I'll go so far as to say that I I think at the time conservative white Australia wasn't really prepared for that cultural shift in the NBA and there was a a noticeable drop off in following of the NBA here in Australia and I think it, it affected the NBL as well. And the NBL at the time was owned by Basketball Australia, the National Federation for the Sport. Essentially, a a body that was responsible for the growth, integrity um, and high performance um, national teams, those sorts of things. Uh, And it wasn't really expert at the time in terms of innovation, market research. Um, it, It was more about the sport than it was about the business of the sport. And that coincided also with uh, a perfect storm here in what is a very, very congested sporting environment in Australia, where the sporting code, the football codes were really starting to find their straps in terms of understanding youth markets, developing um, uh, grassroots programs, particularly if you look at Australian rules football, AFL, or the National Rugby League, NRL, and Cricket Australia. They were all developing youth programs at the time that have now become part of the cultural fabric of of grassroots Australian sport. Uh, And uh, I would say that basketball here had been riding on the coattails a little bit of the NBA, knowing that as the NBA market continued to grow, basketball here would continue to grow and got caught a little bit behind, a bit flat-footed, and that saw the decline in the popularity of the NBL. Uh, what happened was it fell off commercial TV. It was difficult to watch games, um, which meant it was less attractive to the up-and-coming talent from Australia. We started to go to college more often. We started to see some people go to the NBA. That led to a lot of Australians going and playing in Europe. And it was just a gradual decline from there. And essentially, though, once you fall off the mainstream media, it's it's the death knell for the sport. Um, and... There there came a time at which it no longer made sense for Basketball Australia to run the league. It was financially a burden on them rather than a a benefit. And so the the league was privatised into the ownership of each of the teams, much like um, the NBA or, as I understand it, the British League now as well, where there's equal ownership um, between each of the teams, which was sensible at the time, I think, except for the fact that, there probably weren't enough teams for it to make sense. Uh, in a league like the NBA, you have 30 teams, not everyone in terms of an owner or ownership group has time to dedicate to what they think is in the best interest of the league. Uh, and so factions form and and people support one another and people rise to the top and decisions get made. Where there are only eight, nine, 10 teams, and you had really invested owners who were passionate about those teams and all of them were fairly successful business people in their own right. It, it, and I know this largely as hearsay because I wasn't around at the time. So you, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But it was like everyone thought they knew what was best for the league but would all disagree on which way was up. Um, and uh, you, you had the haves and the have-nots, the clubs who were saying, well, why should we be investing in a league uh, to help those poorer clubs that can't stand on their own two feet when we're doing just fine over here? Uh, And you'd have those uh, less commercially successful clubs, not necessarily because they weren't being run as well, but because of maybe the markets that they were in, um, saying, well, how can we contribute to a central marketing fund for the league, for example, when we're not even breaking even and you want us to help market a league for the benefit of those clubs who who are raking in good dollars? So there was a a lack of equity but a real power struggle and as a result, complete inertia in terms of decision-making. And and that led to essentially after three years of private ownership, it led to a situation where uh, the league just was no longer viable. Um, I think come the end of the financial year, 30 June 2015, the only remaining sponsorship for the league, not for the teams but for the league, was a, a ball sponsorship, which was essentially for the supply of basketballs and, and a little bit of cash. Um, there was no TV deal in place for the following season. Uh, I think there was a federal government grant that existed up until that point of maybe a million dollars, uh, which expired at 30 June 2015. So there was literally no more money coming into the administrative side of the league, six employees, uh, and, and as I said, essentially no revenue or sponsors. And at that point... Um, I was I was a lawyer and one of my clients was a, a gentleman by the name of Larry Kesselman. He was the owner of one of the teams. Um, the, the team was the Melbourne Tigers when he purchased it. It was rebranded as Melbourne United. Uh, he and I had done some work on some other areas of his businesses and um, we had a conversation uh, and sort of went along the lines of he said, well, the other owners have now approached me and asked if I'd be interested in taking a majority ownership, in, uh, majority ownership position in the league um, so that one person has more flexible decision-making uh, if I sort of take it on and, and fund it and so on. What do you think? Is that a good idea? You know, my business is fairly well. Uh, I had a bit of a background in basketball. I, I did quite a bit of sports law. He said, so, you know, that side of it well, do you think it would work? And we basically compared... Um, the value proposition that each of us saw in the league and what his group of companies could bring to the league. And we, we identified some things very early that we both thought could be transformational for the business. Uh, the first was that the basketball was actually always really good quality in Australia. Um, it perhaps just hadn't been uh, marketed and given, given the oxygen that it needed to catch fire. So another way of saying that is it was probably under-resourced, under-capitalised. Uh, the second was um, we were on the doorstep of Asia, but no one had ever thought to try and promote the league outside of Australia, other than a brief alliance with a, a team called the Singapore Slingers. But really that was marketing the league to expats in Singapore. It wasn't trying to embrace parts of Asia. Um, so we were uh, massively punching over our weight in terms of capability, but under servicing the product and, and not seeking to commercialize it broadly enough uh and these were the sorts of things where we thought well it's it's not brain surgery it can't be can't be too hard um it just needs to be run like any other business we need to take the the fandom out of it and concentrate on it like we would think about any other business that we might work on and um larry basically said okay i'll I'll take it on uh, if you come and if you come and help me and run it with me. Uh, so that that's where I first got involved. Uh, he took a fifty-one percent ownership position at the time. That's increased over time, and now he's essentially the, the sole owner. He, he has the uh, uh, best part of ninety-four percent ownership now of the league. Um, and since then, we, we've sort of gone from strength to strength by. Focusing our decision making on putting the fan first, um, re-establishing the credibility of the league in the minds of uh, real Australian basketball fans first and foremost, so that we can talk about ourselves as a product of which the nation is proud, and then that gives us a, a bedrock to go and take the product to the rest of the world, and we can we can talk about that some more. but. The the Australian sporting culture of, uh, I don't know if it's an expression that gets used everywhere or not, but tall poppy syndrome. Um, Tall poppy syndrome means essentially you can't talk about yourself um, as being something uh, fantastic. You can't talk yourself up without being taken off at the knees by the general public because Australians like self-deprecating humour, that kind of thing. You, You can't boast about yourself. And that's especially true of the fact in sport, if you're not the very best in the world. So Australia is somewhat spoiled because we have a number of indigenous sports or sports that are only played by Commonwealth countries, something that would be known well to your listeners. Cricket, you know, we've tended to be pretty good with ebbs and flows, but there's only a certain number of countries in the world that play it. So you're always sort of at least in the top three, four, five. Um, Australian rules football no one else plays it so we're always the best in the world rugby league very few countries play it same thing you talk about basketball though or soccer we're one of 250 nations that play Uh, we're removed geographically from the rest of the world you've got a big shiny product like the NBA that everyone is comparing us to and all of a sudden Australians had this sort of sense of well I can't follow the NBL that's a bit embarrassing uh, compared to the NBA and so that, that was one of our first ambitions was to give Australians the confidence to talk about the NBL in a way that they were proud of it, talk about the NBL in the same breath as the NBA and and that we couldn't shy away from the comparisons anymore if we were going to genuinely take the product outside of Australia and make it relevant to the rest of the world. So. That's been a really interesting journey, and again, one one that I'm happy to talk about. I'll, I'll let you sort of lead the way in terms of what aspects of it you'd like to know more.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, from my standpoint, I've sort of come into this conversation trying to trying to see what the lessons are that, that we could potentially take if we were to you know turn this around here. Like you know, British basketball's always spoken about of having all this potential. You know, um, there's all this opportunity there, but we've just never quite been able to make it. Like you know, on on that initial point, sort of coming in, I know that you know Larry was very particular about ensuring that he had that controlling stake to be able to to do the things that you wanted to do but also of course you know having the money um you know when you talk about your sort of financial modeling and how much money it was going to take to be able to turn things around what sort of sums are we talking about um i don't know whether you can share the exact figures about what he had to invest to make it work but like when you talk about sort of a real wild, uh, real sort of massive scale change like that how much investment do you think it takes
1: it's an interesting question because I don't think it's a, a one-size-fits-all solution is the first point I would make. Um, the first first point is that you're situated right near continental Europe and have to compete with basketball powerhouses like Spain and France and, and um, many parts of Eastern Europe uh, where the budgets are significant. Um, but I, I guess uh, we were, to some extent, the beneficiary of the European financial crisis in that the, in the a lot of players came to Australia knowing that even though their contract value probably wouldn't be as high as it was in parts of Europe, they had greater certainty that they would actually get paid and that the club would be there at the end of the season. And there was there was just a great deal of uncertainty at the time when we were coming back into the market. There was a, a certainly a, um, a flight to the economic safety, I guess, of, of Australia. But at the time, I think it's public knowledge anyway the the initial acquisition was somewhere in the vicinity of six or seven million dollars um to acquire an interest in a league which was let's call a spade a spade it was making a significant loss um, and so the it wasn't so much a purchase price it was a um contribution to to operating capital you know guys i'll i'll take on 51 percent um, and I will commit to spending. And it, it, the commitment was somewhere in the order of $7 million over the first three years to try and turn this thing around. And in reality, once we actually got our feet under the desk, I, th- I think we spent most of that in the first six months um, because in the first hundred days, uh, we, we set a pretty rigorous schedule of wanting to completely rebrand the league, um, have every game live on TV, establish a sponsorship base which gave the public confidence that we weren't going anywhere, that we were actually a sustainable product because there was talk at the time, even from the greats of the sport like Andrew Gaze, um, that the league should just fold. It should go away for a while, uh, find its foundations again and then reprise itself in a couple of years' time once people had a sustainable business model that they can demonstrate. So we, we had to bring on board trusted partners Um, that gave the public some faith that they could invest both financially in in season tickets and the like, but also to give them the comfort to invest emotionally back into the sport and their teams and know that they weren't going to fall over. Um, So that was the the intent of that first 100 days was to really give people confidence that we were here for the long haul. And as I said, we rebranded. In that 100 days before tip-off, uh, we had a new deal that saw every game of the NBL live on TV nationally, which was a first for the league. Um, we had, I think it was somewhere in the order of 24 sponsors on board before the ball was was thrown up uh, for the first time on October 4, I think it was, having taken over on 1 July. And most of those sponsors were um, basically pictures from Larry and I, where we went and just wore our heart in our sleeve and said, look, we, we understand we're selling you a promise, there isn't a product yet, but we promise we will deliver a product and we're not asking for sheep stations. We, we only want a modest investment, but we just want you to come on the journey with us in year one and see what this sport is capable of and look, we're putting our reputations and, and his bank balance on the line um, and, and we will make you proud And then in a year, be prepared for the fact that after we've over-delivered a new one, we're going to come and ask for some more significant money. Um, Once we've demonstrated it can find its feet, we want you to help us make sure that it takes off. And so that's how we brought some really big brands on board. And we we essentially haven't lost any because we've continued that positive growth trajectory over the last five years. Every season since, we've had growth in terms of both TV audience and in-game attendance. And normally the two would cannibalize one another Um, so the fact that we've been able to grow both of those metrics every year for the last five years no other national sporting league in australia has been able to do it for two consecutive years at any time in the last six years and we've been able to string it together now for five years i'll tell you what year six will be a challenge in terms of, of attendance because of all of the restrictions associated with covid but certainly we're hopeful that the tv metric will continue to grow this year as well um, and so that's the basis on which we've, we've been able to establish a, a sound financial model was essentially walking before we can run, bringing partners on board who have the wherewithal to go on the journey, um, but also never over-promise and under-deliver, always under-promise, over-deliver, surprise and delight, be innovative um, and Take your partners on the journey with you and ensure that they're doing business with one another for the benefit of the sport and for one another's mutual benefit. Those are sort of some key tips I guess I would take away from financial model.
0: I mean, I mean you you saying it like that and talking about the, the, what you achieved in that, in that such a short period of time, it makes it sound so easy. But I assume it actually probably wasn't as easy as you make it out to be. And I'd be interested in knowing… How much of those partnerships and, and that income that you were able to raise and those deals you were able, able to arrange came from the relationships that you both already had within the business world, and how much that played a role? And with you you know, like if I'm talking about the BBL, they need to have someone involved with it that has those type of connections to be able to go into those meetings with some credibility to be able to get those people on board.
1: 100%. Um, no doubt, uh, you know, Larry's little black book, and to a lesser extent, mine. Um, open doors that we otherwise wouldn't have had access to in the first place one of the great reasons i got involved in sport in the first place was this notion of sports diplomacy Uh, and um, you know i I was a lawyer as i said i did a lot of cross-border mergers and acquisitions type work and and a lot of that was uh, inbound investment into australia from china so a lot of my time was spent on deal making with with chinese clients or chinese counterparts and Trying to get in to see a decision maker in China uh, as a Westerner I found incredibly difficult and frustrating without language and all the rest until I stumbled upon one day uh, a a Chinese entrepreneur who happened to have a passion for basketball and and the relationship, the dynamic of that relationship and the conversation just changed very dramatically and that was sort of a turning point for me where it it came to the, the penny dropped I guess that sport was really a common language and could put people at ease and you could talk about um, what you have in common without necessarily being able to to speak with one another in in a native tongue and we went to games and we we formed a bond and that made it much easier to talk about business Uh, the reality is basketball is the second most popular team sport in australia in terms of participation so everyone here has some sort of connection with it their kids play or they played when they were young or So it's very easy to find a talking point around basketball. And so to go and talk to a sponsor about metrics and the TV product and just the the direct business of basketball was a challenge. But to go and talk to someone that you know and say to them, hey, I know you like basketball. I know your kids play. Or I know you used to go back in the day. Your business, perhaps prior to your involvement even, was a sponsor back in the 80s and 90s. We've all seen the product work here in Australia. We know what success looks like. We know that it's been huge in other parts of the world. Take a look at the growth of the NBA over the last decade. That was an easy conversation. Um, and so, as I said, we were selling a promise, not a not a product. We couldn't point to the metrics. So we were relying on our relationships to open the door and then not having a direct business conversation, but having a trying to have a personal conversation about personal connection with the sport. Um, we know it's family-friendly. We know that boys, girls, men, women, all age groups, any ability can play basketball. It's incredibly inclusive. It's very multicultural. Take it back to its its um, core fundamentals that we all have in common um, with people who you have a relationship with, and it it makes it a, a very sensible value proposition in my mind.
0: How crucial do you think it is um, to have that relationship with uh the national governing body, uh, Basketball Australia. You know, I know that obviously when, when you first got involved, uh, the the league had been decoupled from from the federation. And then sort of when you became involved, I know Basketball Australia obviously put out that statement, essentially endorsing kind of what you were doing and saying they were on board. And of course, fast forward to today, I think in 2019, you, you announced this partnership where you've essentially now taken over the commercial rights for the national teams and doing stuff at the grassroots levels. And you have a very close working relationship with the federation here in in um, in the UK, like... Even though the the British Basel Federation sort of gives an operating license to the professional league to be the professional league, outside of that they're very separate entities. They don't work very much in tandem, I would say. Um, and I'll be interesting just to kind of hear you riff on that a little bit and talk about sort of the relationship with the with the national governing body and how much of a role that has to play in the growth of the sport.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been a relationship of trials and tribulations. I can tell you there there was there were periods there where the two entities just simply didn't trust one another um, and i think that was born out of an era where it felt like the two entities were competing uh, and so so prior to our involvement there wasn't a great deal of trust and and um, there was also a bit of a revolving door on both sides in terms of leadership of the two organizations so i guess it found uh, i guess that made it difficult to form long-lasting relationships also and that was through that state of flux after the MBL was privatized some ceos came and went and and the same at, at ba um but over time i think the two organizations have come to realize that what's in the best interest of the sport is that we both identify what we're good at uh, what we're not so good at and what we can help one another with uh and what we need to do independently of one another and if you put things into those sort of four columns, uh, it gives everyone a lot more certainty to ensure that, one, you're not stepping on one another's toes, two, you're not duplicating effort and therefore wasting resources, which the sport just can't afford to do, um, and three, that your your time and effort is concentrated on those things which you're actually best placed to do. Um, and so that's what led to that arrangement in, in 2019, eighteen nineteen, where we became... Uh, the exclusive commercial agent of Basketball Australia um, and basically, as you said, sought to commercialise the rights of their national teams and um, and other assets, uh, assist with the WNBL as well, the Women's League, which is still under control by Basketball Australia. Um, that model has since evolved as well. So now we're a non-exclusive commercial agent because it came to pass that some elements of their business we were able to commercialise successfully. Others, it made sense for them to do more directly because the delivery of the commercial inventory and assets and deliverables to partners was easier sitting with them. Um, So I think a couple of points are one, that that relationship will probably continue to evolve over time, Um, partly because Basketball Australia and, and equivalent national federations are creatures driven by policy and bureaucracy to some extent um, they're funded out of the federal government budget for high performance sport uh, and so quite often uh, the two organizations are, are just running at different speeds you know, one of the reasons we insisted on on a controlling interest in the NBL was so that we could make decisions quickly and act nimbly um, and therefore be opportunistic uh, we are. Um, I guess we have a mandate to be able to take risk that that Basketball Australia just doesn't have a mandate to do. They have to be by definition and and by virtue of their constituent um, documents, they have to be more risk averse. They have to run things through a a more governance oriented process. Um, And and so the two organisations at times are like this, because even though our intentions might be the same, we want to get from A to B. Uh, the manner in which we get there sometimes just by necessity has to be different. So we have a good relationship in terms of always trying to assist one another in getting from A to B, whether it's uh, them assisting us achieve an objective for the NBL or us assisting them achieve an objective for the national team or the WNBL or Basketball Australia as a whole, or us trying to achieve a joint objective, for example, Uh, bringing the US national team to Australia um, to play against the Boomers. It was a basketball Australia-led initiative, but uh, anything that we could do to add weight to it, support, uh, we would do um, because ultimately it benefits us as well. And, you know, adage is more water in the bath, um, all boats float. So it's a strained relationship at times, but by virtue now of uh just trying to get things done in our separate corporate organizations as opposed to there being a lack of trust or, or lack of transparency those days i think are, are largely behind us, which is great.
0: The other big stakeholder that i've I've heard you kind of set, labeled as as very underrated uh or underappreciating all of this is the Australian Basketball players association um can you talk about the kind of the role that they've played in i guess the growth of the league and how important it's been i mean it seems like the two organizations between the nbl and and and, and the, the player association have got a very sort of strong working relationship uh how important that relationship has been in, in terms of pushing everything forward as well
1: yeah fundamental um i think again in the previous um guise of the nbl there were some strained relationships there because History will show teams were coming and going. There were teams going out of business every other year, and and as a result, there were players who um, had foregone entitlements. Um, you know, companies had been phoenixed and risen from the ashes when it was convenient, and um, and nobody stood behind the liability that was remaining to players. And so there there are a number of players from largely from generations now retired. Um, but probably still some playing, who had been burnt by previous owners of clubs. And that that needed to be addressed in order to ensure that the relationship between player club and league was was very strong. And when I say player, by by virtue of association, the, the union, the Players Association as well. Um, so it, it took a couple of years or seasons, I guess, to restore that faith, but uh, basically we made it very clear that we weren't going to let teams fail and players be left out of pocket, that that's not how we're going to run this business and that we will do our very best to ensure that teams are viable and sustainable and to the extent that the unforeseen should happen, that the league would stand behind the entitlements of players. Um, and I think that gave the Players Association the comfort to then work with us a little bit more hand in glove. It was it was more than just lip service, um, for example, after our first year of ownership, we, we did have a club uh, that went out of business, the Townsville Suns. Um, the, the business model there, essentially everyone decided ultimately wasn't sustainable um, and, and the league did what it said it was going to do and stood behind entitlements owing to players. Um, it happened again more recently in respect of uh, the Illawarra Hawks um, where there's been a, a very successful change of ownership in the last 12 months and they're now... They're now on top of the table undefeated with a very strong ownership group and a very strong roster but in the meantime uh you know the, the league backed up the talk and made sure the players weren't left short of a single dollar of their payments or their entitlements so living up to the lip service for the players i think was an important part of restoring the faith in that relationship and they are an absolutely crucial part of the business they are the united voice of the players. they the players that take an interest in representing, I guess, the senior players who represent the bulk of the players in terms of liaising with the Players Association, are really intelligent guys um, who have played all around the world uh, and, um, and who are adamant to ensure that our players are getting what they deserve um, in terms of recognition, um, in terms of remuneration. Um, and uh, at, at the moment, you know, the league's doing well, but it's not like we're swimming in cash. Uh, we're we're still growing. We're still reinvesting very heavily. And so we've now got a players group who, by virtue of the relationship with the association, understand that we're here for the long haul and we're investing hand over fist to try and make this product as, as strong a product as it can be because that's an investment in their livelihood. Um, we've seen salaries grow. We've also been... Conscious of saying that we can't afford for salaries to grow exponentially every year, or the or the model will break. Um, We all need to grow in a way that is sustainable um, for both players and team owners and the league. Uh, And the strong relationship with the players' association is vital in terms of communicating that message, especially when times get tough, especially during I don't know a pandemic, for example. (laughs) And the relationship again, in this last 12 months has probably been tested more than ever, but has also been resilient more than it has ever been. We've had robust conversations that have ultimately led led to positive outcomes for both sides of the equation, um, and the relationship has got unquestionably stronger in the last 12 months.
0: There seems to have, in, in sort of your plans uh, for the league, there seems to have been a uh, making a focus on bringing sort of back homegrown talent, ensuring there's a place for homegrown talent. Um, and again, that's, that's a, a very hot topic of discussion in the, in the UK. You know, the BBL has always, uh, has, has historically been labelled as being a league for import players and, you know, they get the bulk of the minutes. And that, is, that has slowly actually been changing recently. We've got a lot more uh, sort of national team players and British guys that are, that are playing significant roles within teams. But, um, how important do you think it is to have the, the Australian stars or the, or the high level Australian players playing domestically in the NBL?
1: It's critical. Um, we, we have in a typical season, a rule that, uh, no team can have more than three imports. Um, that's been reduced to two imports for this, this COVID year for a number of different reasons. One financial, two logistical, uh, it's proven very hard to get players into the country. Um, but it's incredibly important to the longevity of the sport that you are investing in your local talent. Uh, and we've seen that pay off in spades. We we even changed the, uh, salary cap rules so that, um, the marquee player or players on a team must be local players. So previously, Uh, marquees could only be imports and and i'm sure it works the same way over there it works the same way in all kinds of sporting leagues around the world that you have a salary cap but in respect of your nominated marquee player only a certain dollar amount counts towards the salary cap and therefore you can pay them significantly more without breaching the salary cap and paying what is colloquially referred to as luxury tax so instead of you know, a superstar like Josh Childress being the highest paid player at the Sydney Kings, by way of example, uh, to fast forward two years, Andrew Bogart was the highest paid player, I'm guessing, at the Sydney Kings um, because it went from a model where only an import could be a marquee to where only a local player could be a marquee. And the reason for that is yes, people tune in to see the uh, uh, Americans play, um, but a lot of American players historically came for a season or two and their aspiration was to go back to the NBA or get into the NBA or they go and play for, for more money in the Euro League, or they swap teams. They take generally on shorter term contracts. Whereas all of our research suggested that fan loyalty was actually stickier with our local players. They wanted to support someone that grew up around the corner or that went to the same high school as as they did or that they had some kind of connection with And so it was incredibly important to us that if you had two players that were of similar capability, um, and one was Australian and one was American, and they were both essentially asking the same money, um, that there was some kind of incentive there for a team to go for the local player. And as a result, we saw considerable talent return in those first couple of seasons from the EuroLeague. Names that come to mind of people like excuse me, <clears throat> Chris Golding, um, Nate Jarwai, Brad Newley, Daniel Kickett, guys who are you know, the, the tried and tested talent and the backbone of our league uh, who previously were lost to Australian basketball and who were returning in droves. Uh, and and just as I alluded to, their their return to the league has resulted in a much greater sense of loyalty between fans and their teams. Um so that's from a business point of view it makes sense to encourage locals to return but from a basketball point of view you know we we love having our australians here playing training together because it's done wonders for the national team as well and um, the reality is that three quarters of any um, FIBA qualifications uh, are played by nbl players now and when you get to the olympics or the world cup you get a big swathe of, of NBA players returning to the national team, but for most part, they, they don't get released and can't play. So to have Australians here and, and gelling um, is really important for, I guess, the cohesion of that national team for three quarters of the time. And importantly, we've now seen that the full-strength uh, national team is is heavily constituted of NBL players as well. It's no longer a given that it's just going to be guys from the NBA and the League.
0: I am going to jump around here cuz there's a few different things that I want to cover but I in terms of the actual um the structure of how the the MBL works in terms of decision making you know you said that you you have the majority sort of the controlling stake so that you can make decisions quickly you know if if you know Larry's got this 94% stake in in the league how does it work with the franchises? Is it a case of like, uh, you know, you pay a licence fee, then, but ultimately it's the league that's making the decisions about the directions and then the franchises have to follow what the league says? Like, kind of how, what is the decision-making process and how does it work?
1: That's essentially correct. So there's a, a licence fee that is paid by any new licensee. Um, so we, we've recently introduced the Tasmania Jack Jumpers into the competition who will, who will join in October of this year. Prior to that, it was the southeast Melbourne Phoenix. Those are greenfield licences, so the new owners pay a license fee to acquire that license. Um, after that, it's a it's a fungible asset um, that can be sold by the licensee, uh, and in which case, they get to monetize that asset. There there is not an annual license fee, um, so it's a one-off. At least at least that's the way that it works at, at present, um, and. In terms of decision making, you're essentially correct. We, we set the rules by which all the franchisees operate uh, and we do so in the best interest of the league as a whole. And that's the important part is that by not having the, the various teams as stakeholders, as, sorry, as decision makers, there's not um, it's not a power struggle to see which uh, which owner rules the day and gets an outcome that is in the best interest of their club we've instead got uh, an organisation who is best suited to making decisions in respect of the interests of the league as a whole. Um, now, that's not to say we, we make those decisions without consultation, uh, of course we do. We meet regularly with uh, the CEOs and general managers of all of our clubs and we have separate meetings with the owners of all of our clubs and, and any sort of significant or material decisions uh, always done by consultation but not by uh, majority vote. So it, it, we go out and we seek the opinions of all of our stakeholders and then ultimately we make a decision that is in what we consider to be the best interest of the, the whole.
0: And I assume that they buy in even more when they see the success of the league and their revenues and, and everything else grow as well, right? Um, so it ends up being a Yeah, I mean lot
1: ultimately easier. most of the owners of the teams now have have bought in relatively recently and certainly within the last three four years since we've had control and so they, they bought in then to the the um, into a product that they saw was growing and they uh, invested in good faith understanding that we would continue to do our best to grow the league and by virtue the value of their franchises um, it's not to say that every decision is popular with every owner of every team uh, in in As in all walks of life, with most decisions that involve uh, groups of stakeholders, there are usually some winners and some losers. Um, But ensuring the competitiveness of the competition, ensuring the entertainment value of the competition, uh, you know, as I said earlier, you've got to put the fan at the centre of every decision that you make. And that's ultimately what we're about. And the competitiveness of the competition, since we've taken over and started making those decisions, has been incredible. We've had, um, I don't know about last season, but certainly the first four seasons, uh, three of those four seasons were the most competitive in NBL history in terms of average winning margin. And the history of the MBL is, is not short. It's been around now for 41 years, 42 years. Um, and to say that you've had three of the four most competitive seasons on record is not by accident. It's because there are mechanisms there that ensure the competitiveness of the game and therefore the quality of the entertainment.
0: Does the league own any of the franchises anymore?
1: Yeah, we do. It's the short answer. Um, And there's a distinction between the league and, and Larry personally. So we've got this vexed history whereby he was the owner of a team um, and was asked to become an owner of the league. uh, And, couldn't essentially be asked to, well, you, you must sell your ownership in the team, otherwise he would have been a, a forced seller and wouldn't have been able to realise market value. But uh, as I said earlier, Larry was the owner of the Melbourne Tigers, which became Melbourne United and has been gradually selling down his interests in, in Melbourne United. So he personally owns 25% of that club, I think, still roughly, but has next to nothing to do with with its operation. It has a, an independent chair and and owners who run that, Um, we are currently in a similar process with the Brisbane Bullets. So the Brisbane Bullets were one of the most successful clubs in in league history. They were one of the um, inaugural clubs back in 1979. Uh, Unfortunately, there was a period where their owner at the time uh, suffered a financial downturn and the Bullets disappeared for a period of eight years. And Brisbane, capital city of Queensland, for those who don't know it, the third largest city, I think, in Australia, was fundamental to us being able to call this a truly national league. And so one of the things uh, we did right off the bat when we took over was said Brisbane will be returning to the competition. Um, Previous administrations had said the same thing and then didn't deliver. And so in order to ensure that it wasn't reliant on any white knight funding the return of the team, we put up our hand and said, we're going to own and operate the team until it's at a position where we think it's sustainable, at which time we will seek to privatise it. Um, that team is now majority owned by uh, a consortium out of the US led by uh, Kevin Martin, former NBA player, um, and a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Jason Levian is his uh, business partner. And, and uh, Jason's got a, a, an extensive history in both the NBA but in sport more generally in terms of administration and ownership of, of franchises. And we're going through a phased approach to that Um, sale process as well so the league has a minority interest still there that is being phased out as we hit certain benchmarks and milestones along along the way Um, so after that there'll be no more league ownership in those two teams and then we have the jack jumpers who are introduced into the competition next season similar process we we don't want to hand over that license until we know that it's going to be a sustainable business that we are comfortable will be Break even or profitable from the time that we can hand it over to a, a private owner, and um, there's a, it's a really interesting model, uh, the Jack Jumpers in terms of partnership with the state government, whereby um, the state government will continue to own their playing facility and training facility in Tasmania, but um, the league is essentially being appointed as the operator and manager of that venue. Uh, the redevelopment of the venue, and it's a fantastic refurbishment that's that's about to be undertaken. It's being funded in joint venture between uh, the, the league and the government. Jack Jumpers will have a fantastic new home and a and a significant um, major sponsor who will be the state government of Tasmania. So we're very excited. Once we get that up and running, about going through the privatisation process there also.
0: One of the sort of the key themes in all of this is kind of having having that control, that centralized control. I, I, I've seen you in previous interviews talk about sort of the centralized marketing as well. You know, when I, when I sort of go on the NBL website, you know, the website's looking super clean. I click on any of the franchise websites, and again, it's the same type of layout, same sort of theme. Everything looks professional, everything looks good. You know, here in the UK, we've got one BBL website that looks very different to all the different franchise websites. Franchises are doing kind of what they want online. Like, how important right. it, do you think it is to have that sort of centralized approach where, you know, there is that brand where you kind of, for a fan, you go on. There and you know what you're going to get for each franchise or the league and having a sort of uniform approach across the entire spectrum
1: oh, i think it's incredibly important that the consistency and quality of your product is uh, um, across the board and and it's too simple to refer to it as a franchise or franchisee model but that is a nice approximate approximation and so similarly if you walk into a McDonald's store anywhere in the world, you know relatively quickly what kind of product you're going to be presented with. And it's usually presented in a very similar way. Uh, we think about it in much the same way. So the, the framework um, uh, is determined by the MBL, and then we make it available to teams. So we, we essentially administer the architecture of those sorts of things. But the the CMS, the content management system, is handed over to the clubs, so they're determining the content, um, and we're determining the way in which it's presented to the public. Having said that, we also have a relationship with many of our clubs where we assist them with their design, um, with their content. There's a lot of sharing that takes place, um, and uh, as a result, yeah, we're we're really proud of our. Digital personality, if you want to call it that, as a sport, uh, we look and feel a bit different to lots of the other major sporting properties here in Australia. Um, we have a, almost a different you know, n- nomenclature or vocabulary into, to other sports here in Australia because we're not trying to paint ourselves as part of the Australian fabric. We're trying to paint ourselves as part of this global cultural phenomenon, which is basketball um and uh there are a lot of learnings that we take from clubs and which clubs take from us and um uh sharing all of that as best you can again it comes back to my point about basketball australia earlier too not duplicating resource where you don't have to concentrating the expenditure of those resources on the bits that that where you are truly competitive i.e out on court and not competing uh, in terms of who has the best website uh, that, it's there's a lot to be said for that
0: how uh, important do you think uh, sort of digital and social has been to the growth of the NBL over the last five years? you know I know you the you've got the the, the deal with twitch which is obviously quite forward thinking um, you know and of course the lamello ball effect which has been huge for for the league, but can you kind of talk about the role that digital and social has had in in the growth of the league
1: It's been extremely significant because it's led to the democratization of sporting content. Um, one of the hallmarks of, I guess, our evolution over the last few years was that we took back control over our production of our broadcast product and by doing so, and the fact that we were receiving modest to no media rights fees domestically, we were able to share that content, content far and wide. Um, you know, I always used to say a couple of years back, if you love something, set it free as in produce great content and then share it as broadly as possible. Um, Because first, before we could get the revenue, we needed to increase reach and we needed to increase relevance and revenue will follow. Um, So uh, when the early days of our broadcast product were unknown in terms of where we would be shown, and this is back in that first 100 days, we made the decision to make uh, MBL TV available to everyone in Australia for I think it was $5 a month. Um, and that we would ensure that every game was available uh, live nationally and to some extent internationally, regardless of whether or not we had a TV in place. We safeguarded ourselves against this very rapidly evolving media market. Sports media market is, is continues to be so dynamic and unpredictable that at least we gave ourselves a backstop. And that was we know the digital space and that will be um, that will be our home if we need it to be. It's continued to evolve. As you say, Twitch is a really great platform for us because people can engage with one another while they're watching a game, share those live moments, which is what we're all about. Facebook is another great one and and very much leveraged off the back of um, our um, relationship with Lomelo Ball and the fact that they had Ball in the family at the time. The most viewers we've ever had for a game was largely uh, US viewership, on facebook when lamello ball took on and the illawarra hawks took on the sydney kings and andrew bogut last year with with over two million live viewers um first time we'd ever had a result in the millions um so it, it's incredibly important and we've partnered with some really interesting suppliers to make sure that we can deliver a digital product particularly in terms of our live or near to live highlights that are the equivalent of any other major sport but we're doing it on a significantly lower budget, and it and it looks, in my opinion, better than most.
0: You know, you're five years down the line, millions invested, is the league in a place now where it is profitable, or do you still think that's a few years off?
1: Uh, look, had it not been for COVID this year, I think it was it was every likelihood that we would have been profitable this season. Um, now we wouldn't have been rolling in in profits, um, but certainly profitability, I don't think, is too far away depending on uh, how everyone recovers from COVID. Uh, but this year, we're all digging deep, team owners, the league, making sure that everyone gets through. Um, but I, d- I don't think that's too far away.
0: How much more room for growth do you think the NBL has?
1: Huge room for growth. One of the, one of the challenges we have is that we're now selling out stadiums quite frequently, um, which is a great problem to have. But the, the difficulty, I think, is how do you take a product that is so good in venue and translate it to TV so that you then have exponential TV audience growth as well? And while we've had TV audience growth each year, it's started from a very low base. Um, so we're still not anywhere near competing with the football codes over here in Australia uh, on a domestic basis. On an international basis, we're doing quite well, but on a domestic basis, so much room for growth in terms of tv audience and that's all about getting on um, the right platforms and programmatic viewing so that fans know when and where to tune in all the time to see to see every game live
0: and just finally, you know, one of the key things I always say about British basketball is that uh, we need to get the mix right of, of not just basketball people, but business people, people that have got the knowledge of both. And I've kind of heard you say very similar things where you, you can't just have a business person that has no knowledge of basketball. You can't just have a basketball person that knows just about business um, or basketball. Can, can you talk about kind of the, the, the role that people have to play and how important it is to have the right people involved to be able to push something like this forward?
1: As in any organisation, it's essential. But a, a significant part of our decision-making was when we were restructuring uh, the organisation, don't just recruit basketball people because too often in the history of the league, um, it was people who were too fanatical about the sport and therefore lose objectivity. Uh, they, they couldn't see the wood for the trees. Um, And sometimes you need to make hard decisions uh, to ensure that the long-term success of the business prevails. Um, And this is one of the things that also led me to a career in sport was working in governance. I couldn't understand why Person A running their own private company or indeed a listed company, a public company, um, would be incredibly dogmatic and stick to every commercial guideline in terms of governance from a, a business point of view in that context, and then would give up their time to be a, a pro bono non-executive director on the board of a sporting club and would constantly look the other way. Um, because, you know, let's just do it for the boys kind of thing. Let's, let's just get it done. And, uh, their sense of objectivity would, would go out the window. Um, and, uh, it, it can't work like that. You can't be in a situation where you're allowing the, the wool to be pulled over your eyes by virtue of your fandom of the sport.
0: Perfect. That's a perfect place to leave. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's hugely appreciated. And hopefully uh, British basketball at some point in the near future will be exactly where the NBL is getting to these days. Uh, your your growth has been inspiring. So please keep up the great work.
1: Thank you very much, Sam. And let me just say uh, in uh, in the last three or four weeks, I've had a number of conversations about British basketball with various different unrelated parties um, who uh, who lead me to believe that the future of British basketball is, is heading in the right direction. And um, uh, it, it's fantastic that we're going to have uh, another English-speaking country Um, at the forefront of the basketball world, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, um, because what it makes for is really interesting transfer of talent around the world as well. Um, So we wish you the very best of luck over there in the UK and uh, look forward to getting along to a game soon.
0: Thank you so much. Good on you, Sam. Hey, podcast listener that you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated. and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now. Uh, open up your podcast player. Go to the Hoops Fix podcast. You'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week you are listening to the hoops fix podcast the official voice of the uk's largest basketball website
1: visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news videos and more